should write a book, Fry. People need to know about the can eat more. I'm getting this book on UFOs. Did you know they're real? But there's a huge comic conspiracy to cover it up. Oh, that's just a paranoid fantasy. I want to be a book. You can pick me up, flip through my pages, make sure nobody drew wieners in me. And welcome to the Not Your Grandmother's Book Club Podcast, where we read them so you don't have them. Because we couldn't get a special master appointed to read them for us. My name is Kevin, and I'm joined as always by my competitive special masters have been a big thing in the legal Twitter community lately. I know. You paid I know. more attention. I know. I've been, I've been familiar with that. I, uh, <laughs> I was just leaning away from the mic. And he, he's holding. Joined as always by my co-host, Benedict the Real Philly Fanatic. Benedict, what's your favorite edible seed? Uh, okay. I feel like we need to, to set up the, uh, the parameters of an edible seed. Because I would say that... I uh, feel uh, like this crosses over with our joke from last week about yeah. the new show title. Yeah, I would say that most... Unintentionally. Um, to be fair, listen, completely unintentionally yeah, on my part. I, I see what you're trying to do, and I'm going to breeze right past it. Um, nutritional value is important to it i'm not uh-huh. sure that, i'm not sure what you're thinking of has any mm-hmm. yeah um, sure <laughs> i've told so, many people very differently yeah <laughs> wow okay um so i i i uh, i was gonna say most nuts would count as seeds but there you go that also doesn't help with what we're talking about um, no i'm thinking <laughs> traditional seeds. seeds seeds okay so hmm I would say like, but like, so, but like, does a does a cardamom pod count as a seed? Because that's a seed, technically. No, because you don't okay. eat it like you eat a seed. You Speak eat... for yourself, motherfucker. <laughs> You're just popping cardamom bobs <laughs> yeah. on the train. Exactly. Um, I would probably. I'm gonna steal your thunder and say sunflower seeds. Ah, oh, you dick. I know. You dick. Know. That or pumpkin seeds. Pumpkin seeds are good in like. If recipes, you can find a good like. pumpkin seed, yeah, like a yeah. good roasted pumpkin seed, I will take it. But I'd say yes. I probably wouldn't snack on a pumpkin seed. I'd put it mm-hmm. in like a Mexican recipe. Oh, I've been known to snack on them. Okay. I'll snack on some mm-hmm. pumpkin seeds. But I am a friend of the sunflower as much <laughs> as you are. Uh, I just ordered a, a, I like, I go through rotations of snacks. Okay. So I'll be on like jerky for a month and then I'll go to something different. And now I'm on sunflower seeds. So I just okay. ordered like a multi-flavor pack of like 12 oh, different packs what you of, got? Uh, What's some, your flavors? I mean, right now, I just the first one I opened today, I'm on the Zesty Ranch, because I'm Ooh. hashtag basic, you know? Okay, Zesty uh, Ranch. What are the other? with Zesty Ranch. I think I might do Buffalo next. There was Ooh, a Buffalo flavor okay. in there. So that might be the next um, one I go to. So I may have told you this before, but in mm-hmm. Spain, they um, they get them with, without the husks taken off. Like, you know, you can either get them, like, de-husked, or you can get them, like, where you do it yourself with your teeth. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's that's what. See, okay, in America, Benedict, in America, we always get them with the 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 husk, as you call it, on. Okay, that's fine. All I'm saying is, in Spain, I once knew a guy when I lived there that had eaten so many sunflower seeds and always broke them in the same way that he had like worn a hole in his tooth, <laughs> where he had like a gr- like a can opener in his tooth. You know what? That's utilitarian, my yeah, friend. Exactly. That's all that is. Fucking genius. <laughs> He had a also, tooth that he'd made into a sunflower yep, seed opener. Yep, yep. Also, I don't know why that reminds me, but I was watching some anime the other day, um, and sure. there was a, a version of the dub that came out in Castilian Spanish. Okay. Like, they're now doing regional 
dialect well, dubs. Well, Castilian just means Spanish Spanish. They just don't I, like to call it that because... Okay, but there's another dub that is called Spanish. Yeah, that pro- uh, they, that probably is like Latin American Spanish. They're probably okay, standardizing... Okay, well, yeah, where, where they don't use the soft S as much. Yeah. Well, that, <laughs> the yeah, lispy the, S. The, yeah, the, the <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. No, there is a difference, though. I'd love to, I'm we don't sure need to get is. into it now. I'm sure there is. But <laughs> anyways, Bennett. To, trying to distract us from talking about fucking militia groups. Like. Folks who uh, watch a lot of Castilian Spanish dubs mm. uh, may not know exactly no. what it is that we do here on they this They probably program. shouldn't be listening to the, I mean, Puedo Hablar en Español. English get podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, to them, I would say, this is the show where we go deep, 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 deep. Profundo. Deep, ah, profundo, profundo, profundo. Uh, <laughs> to plumb the depths of white... I'm going to have to start looking into different uh, words for deep now. I'll do that for a while. <laughs> to plumb the depths of right-wing thought by reviewing a chapter from work of conservative nonfiction and in between taking a look at other examples of the right, doing their best to make America hate again. Start us off. Do you have a hot take for us this week? Yeah, I do. And it's... Um, I... Let me think how to put this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I am I'm going away for the weekend mm-hmm. and someone else is looking after our cat while we're away. Mm-hmm. And I have never been so nervous to leave oh, anything God. in my life. I know I've like I You never leave that cat with be... your in-laws know, like know, every know, other I week. Know. It's just because I'm leaving him in our apartment oh. and I just feel like, what if he misses me? And now I'm sad. So <laughs> I never thought I would be this attached to like something Benedict, and then now uh, fun fact, cats never miss you. They're yeah, cats. Yeah, that's true. I know, I know. Uh, anyway, my hot take is my cat is going to miss me terribly. <laughs> <laughs> Which is absolutely not true, but I yep. like to believe yep. it. Anyway, what about you? Uh, mine, Benedict, I need someone to take the stress out of car buying. Okay. Uh, I realized after I wrote it, it sounded like the first line of a radio ad. Uh, because I'm trying to buy You'd a car You certainly delivered moment. it that way. Trying to buy a car at the moment, and Jesus, is this a fucking nightmare. Can we it's... disrupt the market for car buying? Uh, we're going to disrupt it? Yep. We're going to um, other uh, tech words, it. Uh, but uh, it does seem crazy to me that there isn't like a more stream, like a more streamlined direct to consumer market. For, like yeah, it, it's always going through fucking <coughs> dealerships, like, dealerships. Which Where you're at crazy, their mercy of whatever they been, have in stock. That hasn't been disrupted yet. Yeah, and I'm like, I, I don't even particularly want a car, but I am moving to the suburbs in St. Louis, and this city has no public transportation. Uh-huh. You cannot exist here without a car. It's just untenable. Uh, so I'm uh, I'm looking to buy a hybrid, and my problem is compounded because this is the fucking Midwest, mm-hmm. and they just don't get hybrids at the fucking dealership here. Uh, <laughs> and they're like, this guy wants a hybrid. Charge him 50% <laughs> extra. What a prick. Oh, they are charging me extra. but yeah. Uh, So yeah, it's just a giant pain in the ass, and, and I'd like that all to end. Why but why don't we move on? Why aren't you going full electric? Uh, because I don't have a place where I can park the car and gotcha, charge it every charge night. It. Okay. Cool. I would love to go electric. I'd also, I've been looking at like a plug-in hybrid, uh, okay. where, with like the, the Prius Prime is what it's called. But it's one of those things, those cars are fucking sold months before they're even coming off the assembly line. Do you remember when everyone freaked out about like Hollywood libs owning Priuses? I know. And like, yeah. what, a, what a different time that was. Yeah, now it's the national car of Uber drivers. Well, so uh, now everyone <laughs> fucking loves Teslas. Yeah, I know, I know. Anyway, well, Uh, well, the original Prius models were so fucking ugly. It was just an ugly car. I don't know why they ever did that. Uh, But, housekeeping this week, remember to rate Mm -hmm. and review us on the iTunes. Uh, Follow us 
on the social medias at NYGBCPod and at NYGBCBen. Uh, two short up- updates. Uh, first is that, of course, we are starting our book review of Alex Jones's The Great Reset and The War for the World. I realized there's a colon there, and that doesn't work with the way that is structured. The Great Reset and The War for the World does not need a colon. Uh, at least there was when I pulled it up online. I don't know if the colon is on the cover. because It's not, not on the cover. Right okay, well, when I pulled it up online, I think it was on Amazon, there was a colon there. Uh, which might be how the publisher entered it in. I don't know. Uh, doesn't make sense to have a colon there. But anyways, we'll be starting that next week. We are thoroughly excited for it. We have been needing some crazy in our lives. And if Alex Jones isn't going to give it to us, no, oh, he will. is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which brings me to my second update of the week. Of course, watch the Alex Jones trial. It is ongoing right now. It has been my daily entertainment for the last two weeks. I've been watching every minute of it. I am... Jesus, it's, I don't know, it's taken up an uncomfortably large portion of my life. <laughs> but, that out of the way, can we, we move can on? We, can I please, because I know I always do this, can I just mm-hmm. read a, a teaser for the book by reading the chapter titles? Well, Benedict. You fucking goddamn so. fucker. Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead, cut it. So, uh, chapter one, what is the Great Reset? Uh-huh. Chapter two. I, uh, develop- first off, first off, I don't believe we're going to learn the answer I, to that question I also in that chapter. I don't believe that. No, <laughs> otherwise, that's the end of the book. Uh, chapter two, developing the system of control. Mm. Chapter three, who's responsible for this garbage? <laughs> chapter, I, chapter four, then came COVID 19. Okay. Chapter, oh, please. Chapter he five, never spoke the words Great Reset until after COVID. Oh, yeah, Christ. that's true. Hold on. Is, th- is this who I think it is? Who? Yuval Noah Harari. I don't know that name. Is he this just the guy who wrote uh, that Sapiens book? I don't know. Uh, I'm yeah, not yeah. looking at what you're doing yeah. right now, so, so Yuval, I don't know Yuval, what you're talking Yuval, about. Yuval Noah Harari just wrote that Sapiens and Homo Deus book. There was like the brief history of humankind or whatever. There's a whole chapter... Yuval Noah Harari, Robocop for the Empire. So it's just what? Alex doing a oh diss track God. on oh Yuval my God. Noah Harari. That's amazing. So I can't wait for that. That's amazing. <laughs> and then tra- I'm reading these live. I'm not reading ahead. So chapter six is, you probably won't face a firing squad in the Great Reset, but you may be put in a digital gulag. <laughs> Oh, like somebody, somebody let Alex watch Black Mirror. Listen, That's what happened there. That is an onion headline. Literally, <laughs> like, word for word, that is an onion headline. It's the um, doll E creation of yeah. Alex Jones' words. Chapter 7, Great Reset of Energy. Chapter 8, Great Reset of Food. So I'm presuming he's okay. going to be talking All about right. bugs. Chapter 9, The Globalists Try to Find the Narrative, which seems to be what Alex has been trying yeah. to do for this whole yeah. book. In nine chapters. And chapter 10... 10 crazy things the globalists say about themselves and how oh to fight them. Oh my God, that's going to be such, a great, be such a great chapter. There's an eight page chapter. It's going to be so funny. Oh God. Is that oh the last God. one? That is the last chapter. Oh man, I am so excited for that book. Finally, finally, we've been chasing that dragon and we finally found it. But anyways, uh, why don't we start off? Why don't we get into this? Uh, oh, wait, first before I forget. Spooky World, New World Order, of course. Uh, I do have to say that we are recording ahead of time because Benedict is out of town this weekend. So uh, if you send me something after Wednesday, uh, when the last week's episode came out, uh, it's not going to be on this week's episode. It'll be on the next one. Uh, But this week we do have one inductee, Mm. Joseph Lennox, at Lennox Play on Twitter. You are now part of our... New World Spooky World Order. 
and thank you so very much. Of course, if you would like to join the Spooky World New World Order, eh, you can tweet or post about the show on social media, recommending to others. Send me a screenshot or tag us in it. Leave us a five-star review wherever you can. Drop me a screenshot to let me know. Make a donation to a worthwhile charity, become a patron, or just get my attention with something good. Benedict, all that out of the way. Why don't yep. we get into this week's topic? Of course, we are back with the Lunatic Fringe this week. Right. And um, I actually don't have, uh, I usually give you the title of what I'm naming this week's episode. I haven't come up with one yet because okay. I had, you know, compressed timelines and all. I haven't had time to think about what I'm naming it. How about but, w- Way to Co? <laughs> go fuck yourself. Uh, <laughs> but this week we are starting a series, a mini series, as we often do with the Lunatic Fringe, about the militia movement in the United States. Uh, and while normally I try to tend to try to treat these things chronologically. This time, we're starting a bit different. So today, we're starting with three of the big inciting incidents of the militia movement in the United States. Events that either impacted the movement, were used by militias as recruiting tools, and one, which I will say, a little bit of that, and also did a tremendous amount of damage to the militia movement. Okay. And of course, I'm talking about the events of Ruby Ridge, Waco, and Oklahoma City. Uh... So for a little bit of background context, for those who are not American or may not have all the familiarity that I think most people do with these weird topics I'm obsessed with, while the U.S. Constitution Kevin, mentions... no, nobody... I, I, would, I would warrant to guess that even amongst <laughs> our audience, nobody could tell you what happened at Ruby Ridge. I not think nobody. there are not people... No, not nobody, not nobody. I like think the there are people who of... liked the History Channel when they were young yeah, uh, yeah. in the early 2000s and, and saw some stuff about Ruby Ridge. Interesting. Uh, but, so while the U.S. Constitution mentions militias, most notably the Second Amendment with that mm-hmm. whole well-regulated militia thing, uh, we are not talking about any sort of well-regulated anything today. Militias have existed in the U.S. since the founding, but somewhere after the Civil War, when the U.S. began to have a standing army, particularly, you know, World War I, World War II, mm-hmm. militias just sort of faded away. Uh, and rather than militias, most did states they, have... or did the Ku Klux Klan arise? Mm, like, how are, we defining, how are we defining militia, I could guess? Be, could, uh, yeah. Well, we're defining it... Uh, I will say there is a a previous definition that existed before uh, uh, things like like the Civil War, and -hmm. there's a definition after, right? Because now most states just have National Guard units, Mm -hmm. which are, you know, subdivisions of the U.S. military that are under the control of the governor and serve the same purpose as militias did in the past, and I think can fairly be said to be the successor in fact to militias. Uh, But the far-right patriot movement, on the other hand, in the United States, has existed for decades on decades. Can I I ask a different question? Mm Mm-hmm. Is the police the true successor to pre-Civil War militias? You know, I I know why people make those arguments, but I don't agree with that. Okay, no, Um, I'm just asking. I'm genuinely curious. mm -hmm. No, no, because the... uh, Militias are a little bit more outwardly facing, and they are aimed towards external conflict. Although, you know, given that they were used in the Civil War for internal conflict, a civil Mm -hmm. war, um, militias are more aimed at external conflict, meaning fighting foreign nations. Uh, So that was, I mean, you think back to the... the, the war revolutionary war that's the one i'm thinking Mm of i don't know why i couldn't get the name of that on my tongue uh but most of the units that fought in that war were militias 
that were called up to the army. There, of course, were, uh, you know, like regular army members outside of those militias, but a great number of the soldiers were militias. Of course, there's also all those letters about George Washington complaining about how shitty militias were uh, and didn't do the job right, stuff like that. Uh, And then you had a similar thing in the Civil War when there were all these, you know, local militia companies that were called up to fight during the Civil War for the North and the South. So I see why people make the comparison between police and militias, um, but I, I think that just on a, you know, grammatical level or a definitional level, they're a bit different. Okay. Uh, I think people other also make the claim about police and the slave patrols, which I think is much more apt uh, oh, than yeah. militias. That, I mean, that's a strong argument. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but so, you know, the, the far-right uh, patriot movement, been around for a long time, as have a number of violent separatist groups. Mm-hmm. But the militia movement as we know it today came about really in the 1970s and began to flourish in the 80s and early 90s. And again, the history of the militia movement writ large is something we'll get into in an upcoming episode before uh, we're going to finish. I think we're going to have three episodes on this topic, mm-hmm. finishing with, I think, the present of the militia movement. So, n- not to push on the point, but how do you differentiate that between, like, the KKK versus what you're talking about. So, because um, there's a distinct... Well, okay, there are members of the KKK who are also members of these militias. Mm -hmm. Most of them are white supremacy involved or adjacent. Sure. Uh, But the Ku Klux Klan uh, had a different focus than militias. Mm -hmm. Militias, generally, as we know them today, from their foundation in the 70s through the 80s and 90s, are generally anti-government organizations. Uh, They have a very white supremacist flavor to them. Many of their people have overlap with white supremacist organizations. But the KKK didn't engage as much in all this paramilitary training stuff, which is what militias are really about. They think that there is a war coming or a conflict or a race war or whatever, and they tend to engage in paramilitary uh, training, really embarrassingly in some cases. It's a bunch of fat guys running in the woods. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, think that they're, they're some sort of freedom fighters uh, for a Red Dawn moment that's going to be coming in the future. Okay. Uh, holding ham sandwiches. But for now, oh, we're going to talk about that later. I just want to highlight that generally these were one of a couple types of groups, these militias that popped up in this time frame we're talking about. So you had your weirdo paranoiacs who thought that the commies were coming or were already here and that they would need to fight, like I said, in sort of a Red Dawn type situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had sovereign citizen types who wanted to fight what they saw as an oppressive federal government. They wanted to arm the sheriffs. <laughs> well, sometimes they wanted to kill the sheriff. Oh, uh, <laughs> it depends on whether they like the sheriff or not, to be honest. <laughs> Uh, violent white supremacists seeking to institute a race war or create a white nation, and sometimes a combination of all those factors in, in, in one group. Uh, potentially controversial question. Mm-hmm. How do things like the Panthers fit into this? I would argue that the Black Panthers uh, could qualify, in, you know, some, some parts of them could qualify as a militia. Okay. I think they could, because some of them were engaging in paramilitary um, training and that sort of stuff. Extra-governmental, Extra-governmental, self Yes, all that sort of stuff that they were looking at. Some of them thought there was a race war that was coming, right? There's a lot of variation between Black Panther groups, as much as people like to point to the ones that they don't like uh, the most uh, and say that that's what the Black Panthers are. Uh, Mm -hmm. Some of them, you know, some Black Panthers were literally just community support organizations. There's a lot of variation there. Uh, And while all these groups have varying motives and enemies, they all generally coalesce around the government as the embodiment of their enemies, especially when Democrats were in charge of Mm, that government, and particularly as relates to the events we're going to talk about today. Okay. So to begin with, 
it's difficult to talk about any of these topics without addressing that many of the events, the specifics, are unclear. And that the federal government most certainly shit the bed and fucked up royally, and people deserve to be punished for that. Yeah, my sense from not knowing much about it, and literally, like, this is just from accidentally listening to a podcast about this before we talked about it, Mm -hmm. um, and, like, hearing (laughs) five minutes about it. Um, That's the Know Your Enemy with Nicole Hammer, by the way. It was very good. Um, But... My sense is the federal government fucked up at both yeah. Ruby Ridge and Waco. Most like, definitely. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And we're going to hear that there's some crossover uh, in individuals who are involved in both incidents uh, cool. a later on. I mean, we heard Alex Jones last week screaming for an indictment of Janet Reno at that random official he was yelling at yeah. at Waco, right? But no, nobody got machine gunned, right? I mean, that's no, the, no, yeah. that, that definitely didn't happen. We're actually going to talk about uh, the source of those claims a little cool. later, too. So I do not by any means want to downplay the actions of the government in either of the first two situations we're going to talk about today, Ruby Ridge or Waco. Mm. But it is also important to note that the right and many on the left, some tanky types, who have been sympathetic have taken that impulse and made martyrs out of the figures we're going to talk about today. And while there are plenty of things to criticize about the way the FBI or the ATF or whoever handled the situations... These people are not heroes, and there are very valid reasons for some sort of action to have been taken against them. Um, I think there was one book that I haven't read, but I saw, I was looking across in my research, uh, just called, um, I want to say it was No Heroes, was the name of the book uh, about these sorts of uh, events. So, our main figures in the first event we're going to be talking about today are the Weaver family. Uh, Randy okay. Weaver, his wife Vicki, their son Sammy, daughter Sarah, daughter Rachel, and daughter Elisheba. Randy was born January 3rd, 1948 in Villisca, Iowa. That's how I'm choosing to pronounce it, okay. because fuck Iowa. Uh, he attended Iowa Central Community College, but dropped out in 1968 to enlist in the Army during the Vietnam War. Okay. And he became a Green Beret and was honorably discharged as a sergeant in 1970. In 1971, he married Vicky, who he had met on leave, uh, and did a semester at the University of Northern Iowa before dropping out and going to work at the John Deere factory. And in the late 70s or early 80s, the couple began to get interested in some wacky shit. Uh, I thought you were going to say it began to get busy. (laughs) Well, they did that too. Uh, They started to get interested in religious fundamentalism. Cool. Uh, According to the book Ruby Ridge, The Truth and Tragedy of the Randy Weaver Family by Jess Walter, part of this, at least, had to do because they read the book The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey, which is a literalist end-time Bible prophecy book that made the claim basically that the end times were upon us by comparing current events going on at that time to... Revelation, of course. Okay, those books are a dime a dozen, though. Like, okay, there's got to be something one, else going on in your life. This one had a film version that was narrated by Orson Welles. What? Yeah, this was a big book. That this is was a really insane. big book. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't think it's the only reason. Like you said, it's not the only reason why they got into this stuff. But this was a very big book full of some wacky bullshit. Basically, mm-hmm. just the apocalypse is here type shit, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but Vicky certainly, if not both of them, believed that the apocalypse was imminent. Like, now. Like, right? right, right no, yeah. wait. Now, now. It's coming now. Like, that kind of shit. <laughs> yeah. So, the two packed up their family. They had a couple children at that time. And moved to a remote cabin in the woods on 20 acres in Boundary County, Idaho. The other white state. Mm. Uh, fun fact. They paid about five grand and traded their moving truck for the land. I love that part about tra- trading the moving truck 
for the land. That was <laughs> just funny. that was just great. Uh, Randy, of course, had sovereign citizen ideas. Uh, he refused to pay taxes, and in 1988 ran for sheriff, hanging flyers around the town that, according to a border, reporter named Bill Moreland, said, quote, If you elect me, I'll give you a card that says get out of jail free. <laughs> yeah. Is that... That's presumably illegal. I mean... I, look, there's a lot of places <laughs> out in the middle of nowhere where basically the sheriff can just do whatever the fuck he wants. No, no, there's no one there to run, stop. Running on that promise is shit. Like, that feels illegal. I don't know. It? I don't know. Feels like he's just saying he's not going to put anybody in jail except for the sure. people he doesn't like, of course. And we're going to learn about some of the people he doesn't oh, like. Oh, no. Okay. Because the reason I was going to say, sounds Moore, great. Put nobody in jail. <laughs> Why are we complaining? Because the reason that Bill Moreland had an awareness of Randy was because Bill was going to, in you know the coming years of his career, become a legend in journalism, primarily yeah. for his coverage of Nazis and white supremacists in the Pacific Northwest. Cool. Uh, he passed away last year, sadly, in 2021, but the man did an incredible amount of great work in his field, and like mm-hmm. I said, is a fucking legend. And Moreland became aware of Randy Weaver because he had read and heard from his sources that Randy had connections to the Aryan Nations. And Aryan Nations is another topic that will be covered in a future episode. But the broad strokes are that the Aryan Nations was founded in the early 80s by a former aerospace engineer named Richard Butler, who inaugurated the group with a cross burning in northern Idaho. Cool. Yeah. 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 Great stuff. Uh, And um, also, another thing that's weird to me, aerospace engineers. What the fuck is up with these guys being Nazis? William Luther Pierce, also an aerospace engineer. Just, I don't know why this keeps fucking happening. Uh, but every year, he held the Aryan World Congress, which drew hundreds of white supremacists from across the country and around the world. And Butler's group practiced the religion known as Christian identity, which holds that Christians are the real Jews, and the people who call themselves Jews are imposters and of the devil, and that people of color denigrate the earth. It's not a great religion, and again... The white supremacist religions will be their own episode in the Lunatic Fringe series eventually. But the violent terrorist group, The Order, if you've ever heard of them, came from the ranks of the Aryan Nations. And again, we'll talk about them later, but this is a group that bombed a synagogue, robbed banks, and murdered a Jewish radio host named Alan Berg. Mm. But primarily because of the Aryan Nations' violent attacks and those of The Order, the FBI got interested. And by the early 90s, had lots of informants inside the Aryan Nation compound which was located about an hour and a half drive from the Weaver family home at Ruby Ridge. Okay. And throughout the late 80s and early 90s, Randy Weaver had taken the family on numerous vacations to the Aryan Nations compound in Hayden Lake, Idaho. And, you know, people will claim that Randy wasn't racist, Mm. but let me just point out that he went on vacation with Nazis. Let me counter you yeah, with that. Yeah, but who, like, I mean, who among <laughs> us hasn't gone on vacation with a Nazi by accident once upon a time? I mean, come on. I mean, they sh- so they shared, they weren't quite into the Christian identity belief, but they had similar ideas on some issues as Christian identity, right? They, mm-hmm. they were definitely didn't like black people. Uh, and the defenders, like I said, of the Weavers will try to downplay all this or claim it's government lies, but nobody denies he was hanging out at the Aryan Nations compound and that he brought his kids there. Um, and I would also suggest reading the chapter of Them by John Ronson, where he interviews uh, Weaver's daughter. I think he interviewed Rachel, was the one he was speaking to. Um, and she just talked about how, yeah, they'd go to the Aryan Nation compound as kid, and they didn't think there was anything weird about it. Um, mm. Or 
You could just read Randy's testimony to the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee subcommittee in 1995 when he said, quote, I'm not a hateful racist as most people understand it, but I believe in the separation of races. We wanted to be separated from the rest of the world, to live in a remote area, to give our children a good place to grow up. You don't say that unless you're a white supremacist. Well, he, even I if mean, you I start it with the phrase, be, I'm not a rape, hateful <laughs> racist. He would claim to be a white separatist, I would say, rather than a supremacist. And I would say that's a distinction without a fucking difference. And I understand. And I'm also someone who would point out that difference when, when it's meaningful yeah. to talk about the different ideologies of different groups. That some believe in separatism, some believe in dominance. There is a time when it is important to talk about that. If you're just talking about, I'm not a racist, I just believe in separation of the races, you're fucking lying. You're a goddamn racist. Go fuck yourself. (laughs) But because the feds were trying to get the Aryan nations, very justifiably, they needed to flip people who had close contacts within the Aryan nations. So, of course, over the years, they began looking at Randy Weaver. Mm. Uh, In 1988, on Randy's first visit to the Aryan nation compound, he met an ATF informant who claimed to be a gun dealer for motorcycle gangs. Uh, they met several other times throughout Randy's visits to the Aryan Nations compound. And in 1989, Weaver invited him to the family's home on Ruby Ridge to discuss forming a group to fight the Zog, or Zionist Occupied Government, which is a phrase only Nazis use. Uh, in, 19- in October 1989... Uh, Weaver supposedly sold two sawed-off shotguns to the ATF agent posing as the gun dealer in what I agree was almost certainly entrapment. I completely agree. It was entrapment. He the the ATF agent asked Weaver to do it. Weaver did it. He was like, Hey, got any guns? I'm an arms dealer. (laughs) What? Weaver was not engaged in doing that sort of thing before the ATF agent approached him and asked him to do this for him. So it's just it was entrapment. A hundred percent. And then of course they used this to try to get Randy to become an informant for them. And Seems legit. During the course of all this, the, the ATF, like I said, shit the fucking bed, engaged in some fucking bullshit. ACAB. You know I'm ACAB all the way. Fuck them. Yeah. Uh, they lied to a fucking judge, claiming that Weaver was a bank robber with criminal convictions, which was not true. But yeah. along the way, he was indicted by a grand jury for making and possessing the illegal sawed-offs. So he was arrested in January 1991, charged and released on bail by ATF agents. And the way they arrested him was was funny because the ATF agents posed as motorists with a broken down car on the highway and got him when he pulled over to help them because they thought he was too dangerous to arrest by just like going up to the house and knocking on the door. That seems like it turned out to be correct. Yeah, they might have been correct on that front. Uh, He was given a February 20th court date, which he did not appear for, which made him a fugitive, and the U.S. Marshals were put in charge of making an arrest. Everyone knew that Randy was armed and dangerous. Everyone knew he had violent rhetoric, that he hung around with Nazis. So obviously there was a lot of uh, uh, apprehension about this. But once again, U.S. Marshals shit the bed. Uh, They began by trying to negotiate... Seems like we're identifying a theme. Yeah, yeah. They began by trying to negotiate Randy's surrender, but he refused to leave the cabin. And when people entered the property, the Weavers took up armed positions around the area. Uh, So on August 21st, 1992, a long time after his February 20th court date... Significantly. Six marshals went scouting the area, looking for a location on the property where they could apprehend Weaver. Uh, the marshals were in camo, had night vision goggles, and M16s. And when they approached the cabin, one of the marshals threw a rock to test the reaction of the Weaver family dogs, 
which resulted in the dogs barking, and Weaver's son Sammy, along with Randy's friend Kevin Harris, who was with them at the cabin, coming outside to investigate. At that point, the marshals retreated and took up position in the wood a ways away at what has been called the Y. There was like this point of the trail where it formed a Y. That's where they ended up uh, uh, setting up at. So when Kevin and Sammy approached them in the woods, one of the marshals, according to their version of the story, yelled, Stop! U.S. Marshal! Which resulted in the dog running at him and him shooting the dog, Stryker, killing it. Sammy, the son, then fired his weapon towards the marshals who returned fire. Kevin Harris also got behind a tree and started firing at Marshalls and shot and killed Marshal Bill Deegan. So Sammy, Randy's son, at some point during this, began running back towards the cabin and was shot in the back by the Marshalls killing him. So the source of the first shot in this whole encounter is a point of contention that the defenders of the Weaver family will go to ground on, right? Claiming, obviously, mm-hmm. that the Marshall shot first, and I mean... Yeah, they shot the dog first, right? That's that's the one. Yeah. I would agree. I would agree. They shot they shot first. Um, and Harris, the, can I? The dog is listed as a casualty on the Wikipedia should page, be should be. Is... Yeah, dog did nothing wrong. Yeah, exactly. Uh, rest in peace, striker. Um, I I will also say that there is a whole sub subsection of the Wikipedia page. Sometimes while you're talking, I have it open because uh-huh. I don't hear everything you say. There's a whole subsection of the Wikipedia page that is like constitutionality of the second shot, <laughs> which is this seems oh, that's like... a different yeah, that's a different issue. We're gonna get to yeah, that in a minute. Yeah, no, we're not it talking. Seems, to... It seems like this yeah. might have been written by the fucking ATF if I uh, yeah if I ever didn't yeah hear it. yeah. So Sammy was killed. In that, in that uh, 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 gun battle, whatever you want to call it. Um, shootout. out. Shoot out, yes. And Kevin returned to the cabin, bringing Sammy's body with him. Uh, and therein began the siege that would last 10 days until August 31st, 1992. And at that point, because a U.S. Marshal had been killed, the FBI took over and the hostage rescue team was dispatched and took over the scene. Uh, okay. They were issued special rules of engagement, which read as follows. One. If any adult in the area around the cabin is observed with a weapon after the surrender announcement has been made, deadly force could and should be used to neutralize the individual. Two, if any adult male is observed with a weapon prior to the announcement, deadly force can and should be employed if the shot could be taken without endangering any children. Bit sexist. (laughs) Three, you know what? I didn't think of that when I was putting it down, but yeah, that is. They assume that Vicky can't do anything. Uh, Three, if compromised by any dog, the dog can be taken out. And fuck you, FBI. Yeah. Fuck you. Four, any subjects other than Randy Weaver, Vicki Weaver, Kevin Harris presenting threat of death or grievous bodily harm, FBI rules of deadly force apply. Deadly force can be utilized to prevent the death or grievous bodily injury to oneself or that of another. So the day after the initial shooting, hostage rescue team snipers were positioned in the woods, and upon seeing Randy visit the shed where Sammy's body was placed, fired a shot, wounding him. This caused them to run back towards the cabin, and as Weaver, Sarah, and Kevin Harris ran back towards the house, that sniper fired a second shot, which is the source of that uh, thing you were talking about on the Wikipedia Mm -hmm. page, which wounded Harris, passed through him, and killed Vicky who was standing behind the door holding their 10-month-old baby, Elisha. And the remaining days of the siege were a living hell for those inside the cabin, right? I can only imagine. Vicky's body was on the floor. Doesn't sound like the rest of it had been good. (laughs) None of it was great, but we then have 10 more days 
Vicky's body lying on the floor, and Sarah, who was 10 years old, was the one who had to crawl around the cabin grabbing supplies for the rest of them as they all stayed low to the ground and worried about more gunfire. Feels like you gotta just, like, surrender at that point. Like, if there's a, if there's a body... I mean, I And would, you're surrounded. But, you know... It feels like the, the battle's lost there. I like. understand saying that, but also, Randy was a paranoid white supremacist sovereign citizen who believed that they wanted to kill him, right? They, they believed should have brought that the, the apocalypse sheriff out. was almost here. Believed all this stuff. Well, they didn't call out the sheriff, but eventually the FBI brought in former Special Forces Commander Bo Gritz to negotiate an end to the stand. That is not a real name. It's a real name. That, it's a that real is a, name. That is a porn star that they and found. Boy, Bo Gritz is a crazy person himself who has connections to Christian identity and white separatist groups. But because Great. of his military position and reputation, he was able to talk the Weavers out of the house. Uh, so Randy and Kevin Harris were both tried, with Harris acquitted and Weaver acquitted of all charges except for missing his court date and violating bail conditions, which got him 18 months and a $10,000 fine. Damn. Yeah. Uh, Randy died in May 2022, uh, so just earlier this Didn't year. Didn't he, he sued the government, right? I don't recall if he sued the government. Um, he may have. But I, think I, don't like know. A I think he might have several uh, million dollar settlement. I think I do remember reading that in them in John Ronson's book because Ronson yeah. also spoke to Weaver himself. He drove around with Weaver. Uh, but uh, I think I do remember reading about that. But so during the standoff, uh, the public members of the Aryan nation and all variety of far right supporters drove to the area, confronted the FBI, expressed their support. And some even made attempts to climb the cab, the mountain and go to the cabin themselves. Sorry, Something... just quickly. Settlement of $3.1 million to the there Weavers. You thank you. Thank you. Uh, something that would happen again in our next event. Okay. Which we're on now. Waco? Yeah, why don't we get into it? Uh, 90, that's a year later, right? 93? A couple years later, yes. Vernon Wayne Howell was born on August 17th, 1959 in Houston, Texas to a 14-year-old single mother. Uh, his father left his mother for another underage woman before he was born. Uh, and Howell struggled in what was definitely a difficult childhood. Uh, when he was still in his early 20s, he claimed to be born again and joined his mother's Seventh-day Adventist church, where he became obsessed with the pastor's daughter and persisted to the point where he was kicked out of the congregation. Uh, in 1981, at the age of 22, he moved to Waco, where he joined the Branch Davidians, a cult that itself was an offshoot of another one, the Davidian Seventh-day Adventists, uh, which is the group that had originally purchased and built the Waco compound known as Mount Carmel. Um, this group was also called the Shepherd's Rod, based off of okay. some book written by the founder or something. The Davidian okay. Adventists, the group that, that the, the Branch Davidians were based on, uh, they were also an apocalypse cult. Uh, and the founder, Victor Hotef, uh, his wife usurped power after he died and proclaimed that the world would end in 1959 based on her husband's writing. Uh, you know how that went, Benedict? Do you have any, can you uh, look that up on Wikipedia? The world ended and we're not really here. Shit! Uh, <laughs> of course, that didn't happen. And when the prophecy failed... Wait, why failed, was it called the Davidians? Uh, I don't remember. I think... Uh, so the Shepherd's Rod is based off that guy's thing. The, the Davidians... I think they just find some symbolism in the name or something. I didn't look into it too deeply. Because, yeah, because da it, so it's not to do with David Koresh. It's not because no, no. The David. name okay, Davidians okay. came long before him. That, okay, the, okay. Uh, right. The the group was founded, I think, back in the 30s. 
uh, with this gotcha, name, gotcha, the, gotcha, the gotcha. Davidian Seventh Day Adventists. And then uh, after the the you know end of the world didn't happen, the group split, and a new group uh, under the you know power of a man named Benjamin Roden split off and took part uh, took control of the Mount Carmel compound. They were the ones who started calling themselves the Branch Davidians. Gotcha. Uh, so in 1983, Howell started claiming that he had the gift of prophecy. And he started an affair with Lois Roden, the 60-year-old widow of the former leader of the cult, Benjamin Roden, who I just mentioned, who had died. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Lois allowed Howell to teach his own message, which he was calling the Serpent's Root. They really liked to, to give names to things. I don't know why. Uh, which caused some controversy in the group, especially since the son of the former cult leader, George Roden, had planned on taking over from his cult leader father. Howell announced that God had instructed him to marry a woman named Rachel Jones, which he okay. did. And she added to her last name, the one which Howell had gotten around to calling himself by now, Koresh. Sorry, did, uh, did, uh, did he say that before he met this woman or did he say it after? That's, he had that's been using Koresh before, but I was trying to no, be poetic no, not, and interesting Koresh, in my presentation. Not, not Koresh, no, no, the, the marrying the woman. Like, knowing the name of the woman he was going to marry. Oh, Did yeah, he that's know that? why he got to marry her, because he said God said I get to marry Rachel. No, but that's what I mean. Did he know that before he met her, or did he, like, have the name in his hey, head Benedict, and had to find um, someone named hey, Benedict, that? I don't know if I have to tell you this or not, but cult leaders make shit up all the time. Uh, and usually it's because they want more sex. No, so. I know. I just want to know if it was... I, I want to know when he decided he was going to marry someone with that name. I don't know on that. Um, uh, one of my bigger resources on this one was a three-part uh, PBS American Experience series. Uh, which is... It's really well-written. I will link to it in the show notes. Uh, and I, they never mentioned... Whether he had come up with Rachel before he met Rachel, I guarantee you he didn't, but they didn't mention it in the piece, so I don't know. Um, But this is David Koresh we're talking about. Thanks for interrupting my nice reveal there that everyone already knew was coming. No, Uh, just one of the only things I know about, or not know, but like a weird fact that sticks in my head about David Koresh is, do you remember when Stakem's the Twitter account was popular a little while ago? <laughs> yeah, and then, that every and now then, and then how every like large corporate brand gets some yeah, hip fucking intern to exactly. take over their social media. But, but someone did a fake t- like interview with the Stakem's guy, and it was like, <laughs> I learned a lot from my father, David Koresh. <laughs> <laughs> claimed the Stakem's Twitter guy is absolutely lies. Well, like, Benedict. Not true at all. Well, but Benedict, so you know what? Koresh had some kids, and sure some Maybe of them are still them. out there today. Yeah. Maybe one of them runs the Stakeham's account. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> who knows? But, uh, so, you know, strife going on at the compound. Uh, and a 1988 Waco Tribune article discusses what happened next. Uh, a fire burned down a building and a printing press. And while Koresh claimed that this was the will of God, uh, George Roden, son of the other cult leader, wasn't convinced uh, and saw this as, I think, a chance to kick out his rival. Uh, Mm -hmm. So Roden and his group forced Koresh and his followers off of the compound at gunpoint. And Koresh and his group uh, of about 25 at this point set up camp in Palestine, Texas, about 90 miles away. Yes, Benedict, I know the symbolism. I know it's ironic. About 90 miles away, living in in tents and buses for about two years. And during that time, Koresh, while everyone else was suffering in the desert in tents and buses, uh, was going around uh, recruiting new followers from around the world. Uh, He went to California, Australia, and the UK, uh, and a bunch of other places, and um, managed to gain the support of the majority of Branch Davidians while he was on his exile at this point. Was he... 
a charismatic man do we know i mean presumably but like people say that but let me tell you uh, one of the things i listened to uh was about a 50 minute tape that he put out during uh the events that 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 are coming up right the 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 siege um Mm. and god was that not one of the most boring things i've ever heard in my life (laughs) Uh, it's this this audio tape he recorded because well we'll get to it we'll get to it I'll talk about it because he wasn't it. a wanna... handsome man no he and didn't. I feel like I mean have okay. to be... So I made the joke at one point in my notes here, and I think I took it out, that uh, he was not as hot as the guy they got to play him in that 2018 miniseries. <laughs> they never are. No, they never are, because they, they got a smoke show to play him in that series, man. Uh, but I don't even think he was particularly charismatic. I think he's a fucking weirdo. Yeah. I think he was a slow talker. Uh, and he, he just, I don't find him charismatic at all. Like God I said, I listened to some slow talkers. I listened to 50 minutes of his bullshit. And it's just like, if people are inclined to believe in cults and someone says the word Christ enough, they'll fucking be down for it. Mm-hmm. I think that's part of it. Um, there are other cult leaders who are definitely charismatic, right? Like go look at, uh, Jim Jones and his shit. Dude was fucking charismatic. Dude had charisma out the ass. I don't see it in Koresh. I just don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so. You know, he went off around the world trying to get new people, got a bunch of support. And in 1987, Roden, the the son of the other cult leader, um, challenged Koresh to a resurrection off. Uh, Okay, hold on. (laughs) Time out. (laughs) What the fuck is a resurrection off? The idea was generally that Roden was going to dig up a body. Hear me out. Hear me out. Hear me out. He's just going to dig up a body. They got a cemetery on the compound and everything. He's digging up a body. Um, he and, is absolutely and, burying one of his followers alive and, and being like, "Look, I brought him back." <laughs> that is a hundred, like, yeah. and whichever one of them, Roden or Koresh, was able to resurrect the body was the oh, true leader of the cult. Jesus Christ! <laughs> well, yeah, Jesus Christ, literally. <laughs> no, um, but Koresh. Being a pussy who didn't want a challenge. <laughs> no, Koresh, correctly guessing trickery of some form. <laughs> Went to the sheriff, he narked, and tried to press charges against Roden for abusing a corpse. But sure. the sheriff said they couldn't do anything without evidence. So what's Koresh going to do? He's going to round up some guns and guys and go into Mount Carmel trying to get photos of a body, supposedly, and get into a gunfight with Roden and his followers. Uh, this resulted in Koresh and his followers being charged, but a mistrial occurred in Koresh's case, and the rest of them were acquitted. I don't know. I don't know how you get acquitted when you went in with guns and got into a gunfight at a place you're not allowed to... I don't know. That seems weird to me. But in 1989, George Roden murdered a man named Wayman Dale Adair with an axe after Adair claimed that he was the true messiah and thinking that he was a spy sent by Koresh, uh, leaving Koresh, obviously, his opportunity to get Mount Carmel back, which he did by raising the money and purchasing it. So, oh, okay. He didn't just like take it. No, back. no, he, he didn't just like pull he, the buses he up. Did and a move GoFundMe, no, no. being like, <laughs> help the Branch Davidians take their early fucking... form of GoFundMe. Yes, uh, people don't know this. That's actually how GoFundMe started. It's a cult. GoFundMe <laughs> is a cult. It's, it's actually started by. David <laughs> uh, we spoke to his son. He told us all about it. Um, for this next <laughs> section, I do want to put out just a content warning. Uh, we're going to be talking about child abuse uh, and pedophilia mm. and stuff like that because. Do we have to? Can we not just skip? You it? know, I feel like it's important. Uh, because that's what this group was really all about. 
Uh, oh. Because like any Ross. cult leader, uh, Koresh demanded his pick of the women, as they all seem to do. Uh, and his doctrine, which was known as the House of David, again, the names they like to give things, was based on his prophecy that he would have 24 women with children from among his... Or, 24 children, well, it works either way, actually, in this case, with women from among his followers. Uh, and of course, he declared himself married to them. Uh, he forced couples to separate and declared that only he could have sex with the women and made the men remain celibate. So... Most of the accounts of child abuse and pedophilia come from former cult members who left, uh, often those who were trying to get custody of their children from family members who were still in the cult, uh, but just as often by those who just wanted to speak about the horrors of the Branch Davidians under Koresh's control. Uh, as he was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, David Thibodeau was one of the few survivors of Waco uh, and a personal friend and student of Koresh. He's also the author of the 2018 book that became the miniseries uh, with the, the hot main actor. Um, and uh -huh. he stated, quote, Koresh, or this, he stated that Koresh was, quote, certainly guilty of something. He was either a polygamist or he was guilty of statutory rape, probably both. And one of the child wives chosen by Koresh was the younger sister of his first wife, Rachel. And during the siege, um, there's, there was a video camera that was sent in to Koresh uh, so that he could make recordings with people. This was something the FBI tried to do to, you know, calm things and get them, you know, maybe into more talkative moods. Um, mm -hmm. Koresh acknowledged having 12 children. Uh, and introduced the FBI in those tapes to some of his brides, some of whom indeed Sorry, were children. So, did we did we skip over why it's being raided? Um, well, Benedict, uh, we're we're getting there. Uh, okay. we're, we're not there yet. I am jumping ahead a little no, bit. No, well, you you jumped ahead. I, 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 yeah. Because I tried to group all this stuff into one section, yeah, no, so we didn't have good. to. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Uh, there fair is enough. no doubt that the Branch Davidians were a pedophile cult. But of course, the supporters like Alex Jones simply claim that those are all lies, that the people who said them were disaffected, uh, you know, ex-members ex who were trying to spread lies about Koresh, blah, right, blah, blah. Uh, I would point to, you know, the fact that th he, he had fucking child brides, man. Uh, it's gruesome shit. Um, he also began telling the group that they had to prepare a, quote, army of God to prepare for the end times. And in 1993, the Waco Tribune Herald... That always ends well. Yeah, doesn't it? Uh, in 1993, the Waco Tribune Herald began publishing a series of articles titled The Sinful Messiah, which included interviews with former members, police, and others about Koresh and his group, and it detailed claims of child abuse, pedophilia, polygamy, and the stockpiling of weapons. I will link it in the show notes, but some of the claims of abuse are pretty disturbing, uh, including things like starving children for days as punishment, beatings, and of course the child brides. Uh, so if you want to read it, you can, but just be aware that that's in there. Uh, it was the weapons, of course, that got Chief Deputy of the McLennan County Sheriff Dep uh, Department, Daniel Weyenberg, to call the ATF after he'd been contacted by a postal service worker uh, about a report by a local driver who had made a package uh, break open as he was delivering it the to reveal black powder, guns, and grenade casings while he was okay. making a delivery to a gun store owned by the Branch Davidians. And thus began another inept ATF operation that led to tragedy. 
the ATF began surveilling the property and gathering evidence of illegal com- uh, conversions of guns to automatic fire capability, but their cover was so bad that the Davidians knew that they were agents. They pretended to be college students across the street, but they were like all in their 30s. <laughs> How do you do, fellow kids? Yes, it was exactly that. And they even had one informant inside the Branch Davidians, but Koresh uh, had been told about the informant by somebody, um, and he didn't tell anyone until the siege actually began, that he knew this guy's identity. Uh, but... They, they knew. They knew that this was going on. So the ATF okay. obtained an arrest warrant for Koresh and some followers, which specified a search on or before February 28th, 1993. And of course, this search warrant application had a bunch of speculation and exaggeration in addition to the established facts, which in my opinion on their own may have been enough to get a search warrant. You didn't need all the bullshit. Uh, they also had bad intel that Koresh rarely left the compound, which he actually did quite often. He went over to the gun shop a lot. He uh, had relatively decent relations with members of the community. So on February 28th, the ATF went in, with the Davidians aware that they were about to raid them because a news reporter who had been tipped off got lost on the way and asked a postal worker for directions, oh, who just happened to be David Koresh's brother-in-law. Great. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. So when the ATF agents arrived at 9.45 a.m., Koresh had already ordered his followers to take up guns and prepare for their assault. Now, obviously, this is another time where the ATF agents claim that they heard gunshots from inside first, and the Davidians claim that the first shots came from the ATF. And this is a huge point of contention that no one, I, or anybody else can answer. But either way, a gun battle erupted that lasted for two hours and resulted in four ATF agents killed, 16 injured, and on the other side, five dead Davidians, and two other Davidians who were killed by the Davidians themselves after having been wounded in battle. Uh, a mercy-killing type thing, supposedly. That's How many Davidians were there in the compound at this time? Um, I don't have that in my notes, but I believe it was somewhere around 100. Uh, I don't think I wrote down the total number, but just based on what I know about how this ends, I think it's a little bit over 100. Um, As with the Ruby Ridge incident, because we had federal agents who had been killed, the FBI took control again and initiated a siege that lasted 51 days and was headed by the same hostage rescue team commander who had royally fucked up Ruby Ridge. This is someone who the FBI negotiators on site criticized for repeatedly pushing for tactical solutions rather than negotiations. So initially, the FBI negotiated with Koresh and got an agreement that he would allow everyone to leave in exchange for getting a message from him broadcast on national radio. And that was done. His message was broadcast on radio. And that is what I was telling you that I listened to the other day. It's about 57 minutes long. I will link it in the show notes. Publish a fifty-seven minute long fifty-seven message? minutes long on radio. Was it at yeah. like three a.m.? Uh, no, I think it was like middle of the day. Jesus. Yeah, they got it out, and it is rambling. It is full of religious crazy, and like I said, really freaking boring when I listen to it. Uh, so yeah. I'll link it in the show notes if you want. It's on YouTube. I, I it's just. I can't tell you how many times he said Christ in the first five minutes. uh, And I was saying to myself, oh, Christ, I'm really going to listen to this whole thing. Uh, But of course, as with most cult leaders at the end of their time outside of prison, uh, Koresh really didn't have any reason to follow through on his side. And despite getting his wish, he told the FBI and his followers that God had told him to stay in the building and wait. They did, however, continue negotiations and get 19 children released from the compound over the next few days. 
the FBI also sent in a video camera for Koresh, and he recorded himself and introduced his wives, again, some of whom were children, and which is kind of fucking horrifying. Uh, Koresh sent the video out to show that there were no hostages and that they were all there of their own free will, but it's a fucking cult, man. Koresh's will was the only will that mattered. It's a fucking cult. Uh, Free will is a different concept when it comes to cults. Um, Koresh did eventually order 11 more people to leave, and they did. And, of course, uh, we've all heard about the things that the FBI did during this time, like cutting water and power, playing loud music at all hours of the day to deprive them of sleep, and started running tanks around the property, destroying buildings. And I gotta say, if you're in an apocalypse cult... Um, that's not going to disillusion you of your belief that you're in the end times and no. and in the right in this situation. And what a fucking mess. I mean, negotiations broke down, obviously. Uh, Koresh eventually told negotiators that he was the second coming of Jesus and that he had been commanded to stay in the compound by God. Uh, whether this was desperation or delusion, I don't think we can ever really know. Um, you know, like I said, he had nothing to lose, right? He would probably spend the rest of his life in prison if he walked out of that compound. Uh, uh-huh. So what did he have to lose uh, uh, by just staying there? I think it, it, it's unclear. But eventually, Attorney General Janet Reno, who we've heard <laughs> Alex Jones screaming about, approved what? a plan uh, sent to her by the hostage rescue team to mount an assault, which occurred on April 19th, 1993. Uh, and the FBI, and, and I will say part of the justification that went into that was the children who were released, released from the compound. Uh, the FBI uh, uh, investigators who talked to them after they were released used really heavy-handed tactics and got them to say things that they needed to justify an armored assault. Uh, that's that's part of why this decision was eventually made, and part of what Reno uh, said is was her justification was the horrible things she heard about happening to these children. Um, so... On April 19th, 1993, the FBI drove in in armored vehicles that were equipped to punch holes in the wall of the compound and began tossing in CS gas grenades, a.k.a. tear gas grenades. And at some point, a fire started. Nobody knows why. Uh, There is no conclusive answer to this question. The conspiracists and militia types and, of course, the Alex Joneses claim that it was the FBI. Uh, Some intentionally, some claim that they used a tank with a flamethrower attached and you can see it on on the FLIR, the forward-looking infrared cameras. You can see it, um, that there was a flamethrower. I mean, sometimes fires just start, especially (laughs) when there's fucking gunfire and big ass. More reasonable critics, uh, like people who actually care about the militarization of the police, uh, say that they could have hit electrical wires while going through the wall with those tanks, or that a faulty CS gas canister had caused the fire. However, uh, the CS gas canisters were inserted about an hour before the fire started. But horrifyingly, on listening devices that the uh, FBI had gotten inside of the Mount Carmel compound, as the tanks are approaching, people in the compound can be heard saying things like, quote, have you poured it yet? In the hallway, things are poured, right? And another quote, quote, the fuel has to go all around to get it started. With another person responding to that person saying, well, there are two cans here if that's poured soon. The other factor... That, that seems like they maybe maybe the fire yeah. started a different yeah. way. The other factor that leads to that horrifying conclusion is that three fires started at different parts of the building simultaneously. Mm. Which leads me and I think the majority of people to the conclusion that this was a mass suicide ordered by Koresh, 
who himself was shot and killed by his aide, Steve Schneider, who then shot himself. Mm-hmm. 20 of the bodies that were recovered after the fire were determined to have been killed by gunshot wounds. And in all, 76 people died, making the death toll Jesus. 82 in total. After the final release of people, uh, uh, most of them stayed inside of the building as the fire burned. So, obviously, we know there are conspiracies around Waco. And one of the big ones is started by a, wonder, a woman named Linda Thompson, uh, who created a, a uh, I'm not going to call it a documentary, uh, a videotape called Waco, The Big Lie. Uh, oh, no. Yeah. Uh, it oh, makes God. some outrageous claims. Uh, she's one of the people who claimed that they were machine-gunning people at the back door of the compound as they tried to escape Ooh. the fire. Has she uh, done anything else since this time? She has claimed that uh, the ATF agents who died were all former personal bodyguards of Bill Clinton and that their deaths were assassinations, so she's done that. What? Yeah. Linda Thompson's what? a fucking crazy. Uh, she's a fucking crazy person. Has she done anything on... Is she still alive? I think, and don't quote me on this, I think she had been on InfoWars. Okay. What uh, does she think about Donald Trump? That's what I want to know. Actually, I think she might be dead. I, I don't okay. know off the top of my head... Um, but I think she might have passed away in like the late 2000s or something like that. Okay. Uh, yeah, 2009. She died in 2009 uh, in okay. Florida. Uh, what but, does she think of Obama? That's more to the point. You know, I'm sure that she what had killed some her? words to say. <laughs> I am sure she had some words to say. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, she made a bunch of different tapes about Waco, and her whole life was basically became about Waco being a false flag or government murder, you know, all that stuff. Uh, spreading most it's of nice the lies. It's nice that all this stuff existed before 9-11. As yeah, well, isn't it? It's kind of comforting. Isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I don't remember. Was it uh, the year of Waco or Wake Up, the Alex Jones documentary? Um, it was 2000, I think. It was either 1999 yeah. or 2000, because uh, those were the first two that I had, and uh, the earliest one I had was 99, the second one was 2000. But, I mean, yeah, that was before 9-11, too. This was, the militia community had these things, like I said, these are inciting incidents for the militia community, and people who were uh, putting forth these conspiracies for the part, the biggest cluster of them were the militia types. The people who were saying that this is the reason why we need our guns. Because the government will come for us Mm -hmm. and they'll murder us all. Uh, That's why a lot of people said this. But, you know, as with Ruby Ridge, uh, during the siege, and this is obviously a much longer one, people flocked to the compound. Uh, Protesters lined up the road outside and with people selling books and t-shirts and bumper stickers and all sorts of merchandise. And one of those visitors, who just so happened to be interviewed by a local news reporter, was a young man with gigantic ears, a bad haircut, and the future perpetrator of one of the worst mass atrocities in United States history. Okay. You like that Two transition? out of three of those were Prince Charles. So <laughs> I, <yeah. laughs> no, 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 no. He was at a Pizza Express. Pizza Express. No, that's Prince uh, Andrew. <laughs> they're the same they're to Prince me. Uh, don't you mean King Charles? It's King Charles, yeah. <laughs> I mean King Charles, yeah. Sorry. That's right, he's your fucking overlord now. Yeah, that's true. Uh, thanks for the levity before this last one. Timothy yep. James Oklahoma McVeigh. City bombing, baby. Let's fucking go. So Timothy James McVeigh was born on April 23rd, 1968 in Lockport, New York. Uh, he had an interest in computers when he was young and reportedly even managed to hack government computer systems on his Commodore 64 under the handle The Wanderer. Okay. Uh, And despite bad grades, uh, he was named most promising computer programmer at his high school. Uh, He (laughs) graduated. Yeah, you don't think about this guy in computers a lot, do you? Nope. Um, He well, at some point we will talk about the connection between the early internet and white supremacy. Uh, He graduated high school in 1986. The early internet. (laughs) 
all of the internet. <laughs> I'm just saying they're early adopters is all. Yeah, uh, yeah. He graduated high school in 1986 and got interested in guns, of course. He reportedly wanted to own a gun store. Uh, he briefly attended community college and worked as an armored car guard before enlisting in the U.S. Army in 1988. While in the military... He was reprimanded for purchasing a white tower, white power T-shirt at a Ku Klux Klan rally in protest Amazing. of black servicemen no who wore black power shirts. Okay, cool. Yep, that's yep. like fucking Michael Knowles making his his Malcolm X documentary. <laughs> Did you see Benedict, that? By the way, Benedict, 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 Benedict. We are watching that movie. Yeah, that's gonna be a we Patreon have episode. to watch that movie. Yeah, uh, He had a reputation in the military of treating black servicemen poorly and, of course, using racial slurs. Uh, but he was deployed to Desert Storm, where he received the Bronze Star, National Defense Service Medal, Southwest Asia Service Medal, Army Service Ribbon, and Kuwaiti Liberation Medal. When he returned, he wanted to join the Special Forces and enter the program, but washed out after three weeks and at that point decided to leave the Army and was honorably discharged. So after leaving the military, he moved around for a while from place to place, working various odd jobs. He reportedly was very frustrated that he couldn't find a girlfriend, started gambling a lot, and started, of mm. course, like all good people do, getting mad at the government. Sure. Uh, he wrote letters to newspapers and elected officials to saying things like, quote, Taxes are a joke. Regardless of what a political candidate promises, they will increase. More taxes are always the answer to government mismanagement. They mess up, we suffer. Bearing Ta in mind, this is presumably around the time of Grover Norquist's tax, no new taxes pledge. Yep, 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 yep. Taxes are reaching cataclysmic levels with no slowdown in sight. Is a civil war imminent? Do we have to shed blood to reform the current system? I hope it doesn't come to that, but it might. Yeah. And when the army reached out saying that they had overpaid him by about $1,100 while he was serving and tried to get repayment of that, he wrote to them, quote, go ahead, take everything I own, take my dignity, feel good as you grow fat and rich to my, at my expense, sucking my tax dollars and property. I feel like Which, you gotta just leave that as the army. Like, that's not enough. You know, I was about to say, to like, yeah, go fuck yourself. Yeah. Leave him his fucking 1100 bucks. Leave yeah. him the fucking money. It's yeah. 1100 bucks. Go fuck yourself. Uh, the, the I would one... write that letter too. I would yeah. write that angry letter to the fucking military too. So what you're saying is Timothy McVeigh had some good points. I have written, I have written harsher reviews of U-Haul uh, rental places that refused to take my word for what the gas gauge said when I picked up the truck um, than what Timothy McVeigh wrote there to the U.S. military. So uh, in 1993... Uh, McVeigh drove down to Waco, Texas, as I said, during the Branch Davidian siege, where he sold bumper stickers and pro-gun literature from the hood of his car. Uh, he was interviewed while there by a student reporter from Southern Methodist University, uh, who he told, quote, The government is afraid of the guns people have because they have to have control of the people at all times. Once you take away the guns, you can do anything to people. You give them an inch and they take a mile. I believe we are slowly turning into a socialist government. The sure. government is continually growing bigger and more powerful, and the people need to prepare to defend themselves against government control. Now, you tell me whether that was Timothy McVeigh or Tucker Carlson. I don't know. <laughs> it was McVeigh. Uh, he spent the next six months or so traveling the gun show circuit, working at the shows, handing out cards with the name and address of Lon Horiuchi, 
the sniper who killed Vicki Weaver in hopes that someone would go murder him, uh, and selling survival gear and copies of the Turner Diaries, among other white supremacist literature that he was distributing. The Turner Diaries, of course, was written by white supremacist William Luther Pierce and uh, is a fictional account of a white supremacist uprising against the government and or slash race war, which we will be discussing in a future episode. But at some point in 1993, he moved to a farm in Michigan where a former roommate named Terry Nichols, who he had met in basic training in the Army, lived. And Terry and his brother started teaching McVeigh how to make homemade explosives. Great. Always a good idea, right? Always a good idea. Uh, The destruction of the Waco compound was the event that enraged McVeigh and convinced Mm -hmm. him that he had to take action. Of course, he suspected that it was a massacre by the government. Uh, He started making videos and pamphlets with titles like, quote, U.S. government initiates open warfare against the American people and Waco shootout evokes memory of Warsaw 43. Does Alex Jones ever reckon with any of this in his Waco conspiracy Alex Jones, the last, I, I didn't watch the entirety of that Waco and Wake Up. I, I watched about 20 minutes of it. Uh, at that time, I can't really vouch for his current Waco conspiracy because he, he moves around so much and changes his narratives depending on the current moment. But at that time, his narrative was that it was actually the ATF who had done the bombing and that McVeigh was a patsy. Cool. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so he wrote a goodbye letter. To a childhood friend named Steve Hodge, uh, as he believed he was about to go to battle and possibly die, the letter stated, in part, for example, quote, those who betray or subvert the Constitution are guilty of sedition and or treason, are domestic enemies, and should and will be punished accordingly. It also stands to reason that anyone who sympathizes with the enemy or gives aid or comfort to said enemy is likewise guilty. I have sworn to uphold and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and I will. And I will because not only did I swear to, but I believe in what it stands for in every bit of my heart, soul, and being. I know in my heart that I am right in my struggle, Steve. I have come to peace with myself, my God, and my cause. Blood will flow in the streets, Steve. Good versus evil. Free men versus socialist wannabe slaves. Pray it is not your blood, my friend. It is God. ominous. Yet ominous. somewhat, yeah, given yeah. what we know happened, yeah. As he developed his plan, he attempted to get another man named Michael Fortier involved, who had lived with him, uh, he had lived with in Arizona, rather. But Fortier declined and also told his girlfriend about it. Uh, right. He wrote a letter to the ATF. People will always tell their girlfriend shit. I know. No matter how much you think you're boys yep. with someone, their yep. girlfriend always knows. They know all the shit. They've got yep. all the tea. Uh, he wrote a letter to the ATF, which stated, quote, ATF. All you tyrannical motherfuckers will swing in the wind one day for your treasonous actions against the Constitution of the United States. Remember the Nuremberg trials. Okay. And in 1994, he and Terry Nichols attended several of the early meetings of a group in Michigan founded by Norm Olson, which was called the Michigan Militia. Great. So beginning in August 1994, McVeigh and Nichols started compiling supplies, including about 5,000 pounds of ammonium nitrate, up to 13 acetylene gas canisters, 350 pounds of high-grade explosives stolen from a quarry, diesel fuel, and detonation cord. They assembled this in the back of a Ryder rental truck, rented under the name of Robert D. King, which was a name that McVeigh had taken to calling himself whenever he didn't want to use his real one. Uh, The two purposefully built the bomb in a manner that directed the explosion to one side of the truck, the side that would be towards their target. 
And in choosing his target, McVeigh decided that he wanted a building that housed at least two of the three government agencies on his shit list, the ATF, the FBI, and the DEA. And after looking at several federal buildings around the country, Why he decided... Why the DEA? Uh, DEA is, is often involved in uh, going after right-wing extremist groups, uh, be, you know, usually for meth. There's a lot of meth on, in, you know, Nazis do meth a lot is a big thing. Uh, I mean, so. famously, that's what, like, fueled the war effort. For <laughs> uh, the, but the DEA gets involved, you know, like, and also a lot of times, like, if the ATF doesn't have something, like, sometimes they give it to the DEA and, like, somebody bought an ounce of weed. You know, fuck the DEA, too. But, you know, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, McVeigh obviously had a much more violent uh, uh, fantasy about what he wanted to do. But he eventually decided on the Alfred P. Murrah Federal, Federal Building in Oklahoma City, partly because of its glass facade, which he expected to shatter and lead to more destruction inside, and the layout of the area, which he expected to do less damage to nearby non-federal buildings. Uh, he actually disregarded a federal building in Florida, or in uh, Arizona, actually, because there was a florist shop on the ground floor. And he didn't want to kill those innocents. Yeah. Yeah. McVeigh chose the date of April 19th, 1995 to coincide with the anniversary of the Waco siege, as well as the Battle of Lexington and Concord. He drove the bomb to location and parked it illegally in a drop-off zone on the north side of the building while wearing a Six Semper Tyrannus t-shirt and having with him an envelope containing pages from the Turner Diaries, in which... At 9.15 a.m., according to the story, the white supremacist revolutionaries detonated a bomb that destroyed FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C. So at 8.57 a.m., he left the truck and walked to a getaway vehicle he had parked about eight blocks away and left the city. At 9.02 a.m., the truck detonated with an effect of over 5,000 pounds of TNT. Leaving that's, an a eight, that's a lot. That's a lot. That is a lot. Leaving an eight-foot-deep, 30-foot-wide crater in the street ripping the building in half, which included the daycare center, which McVeigh had been unaware was directly above the drop-off zone where he had parked the bomb. 168... Yeah, it's not. 168 people were killed, including 19 children. Over 300 buildings were destroyed or damaged, and hundreds more were injured. McVeigh would later say, quote, I didn't define the rules of engagement in this conflict. The rules, if not written down, are defined by the aggressor. It was brutal, no holds barred. Women and kids were killed at Waco and Ruby Ridge. You put back in their faces exactly what they're giving out. He then stated later, I wanted the government to hurt like the people of Waco and Ruby Ridge had. Okay. But McVeigh had forgotten to take the vehicle identification number off of the rear axle of the rental truck, although he had removed most of them from the rest of the truck. And using that, investigators tracked down the rental location, had a forensic sketch made, which, don't get me started on forensic sketches, most of them are fucking bullshit, and went to local motels until they found one where somebody recognized him. Uh, where McVeigh had used his real name to sign into the motel. Uh, I don't know why you don't use... You had an established one you used to rent the truck. Why didn't you use it at the hotel? Doesn't make sense to me. However, McVeigh, by that time, was already in custody. Uh, Less than two hours after the bombing, McVeigh had been pulled over on Interstate 35 near Perry, Oklahoma, which I have been to before, uh, because his getaway vehicle, a 1977 yellow Mercury Mercury Marquis, had no Mm -hmm. license plate. Feels like you make sure 
that your that getaway vehicle you, yeah. has nothing all the, the, the Y's. Yeah, the, uh, the I's dotted and the T's crossed. Feels mm-hmm. like you make sure that that's done. Uh, but the state trooper who pulled him over, Charles Hanger, noticed a bulge under his jacket and arrested him for driving without plates and for possessing a concealed weapon. The okay. pieces were put together, and eventually the motel worker ID'd McVeigh. Search warrants turned up bomb-making supplies, and Terry Nichols's brother was granted immunity in exchange for testifying against them. And the trial was simple. There wasn't a whole lot. That it was pretty dead to rights. Uh, but McVeigh's defense attorneys ended up showing the jury the entire movie Waco the Big Lie, which we talked about a little while earlier. Mm. And we seems to be an attempt to red pill the jury. Great. I know that phrase didn't exist yet. No, but the concept did. (laughs) But I think the concept did, and I think they were trying to red pill the jury. So McVeigh was found guilty, of course, uh, and sentenced to death in 1997, and he was executed in 2001. Terry Nichols was sentenced to 161 consecutive life sentences and remains in federal prison to this day. But there's one more victim of the Oklahoma City bombing who I want to talk about, who I think deserves to end our story today. So while the official death toll is 168, myself and many others maintain that there is a 169th victim. Mm-hmm. Terrence Yeeke was born November 9th, 1965, and was a sergeant in the Oklahoma City Police Department. He had joined the department in 1995 and, you know, fuck the police, but, you know. Mr. Yeeke was the first officer to respond to the site of the bombing and immediately began searching through the wreckage, rescuing four people in those crucial immediate moments as debris was still following and falling and victims were dying in the rubble. And after removing the fourth victim, he fell through two floors of the building and injured his back, making Mm -hmm. him unable to continue searching for survivors, something that left him with an immense feeling of guilt for the rest of his life. Uh, Having injured himself and being unable to save any more lives is something that people who knew him said he talked about a lot. And on May 7th, 1996, just three days before he was to receive the department's Medal Medal of Valor, he died of suicide. And while he didn't leave a note, everyone who knew him agreed that his guilt over his inability to save more lives was the likely cause. Mm -hmm. So, Terrence Yeeke, the 169th victim of Timothy McVeigh, not a good thing to be known for, but I think he deserves some recognition. Mm -hmm. And the reason why we talked about all these events today, Benedict, uh, is that these things still live on in the minds of the militia community, the white supremacist community, Either as a great tragedy, as a government false flag, something meant to demonize them, or to some, especially in the view of OKC, a great success. Mm. And that, that are our three insight. There are obviously many more. There are many more things. There are many, there are so many militia standoffs in the 90s yeah, uh, the and 80s. Well, that the Bundys were much more recently. <laughs> no, I know, I know. But, but like, there uh, were many. It's, it's there not were, stopped, is what I'm saying. Yeah, there were many in the 90s that people have just never heard of because it was almost like a pastime for militias. Uh, and, you know, most of them following Ruby Ridge and Waco. There's one, um, there's a picture of uh, Randy Weaver in 1996 where he was at another standoff for, I think it was like the Freedmen's Militia, the Freemen's Militia or something. I can't remember the name of the group, but it's like a picture. I think it's the one used on like his Wikipedia page. Um, these things just happened all the time, and many of them were spurred by the ones that came before them, Ruby Ridge, Waco, those sorts of things. These groups trying to get attention, trying to get recognition, some of them truly believing in the bullshit that they spouted about an oppressive government that was just going to murder them uh, no matter what. So... Mm-hmm. 
this is where I chose to begin our exploration of the militias because these things are going to come up repeatedly as we talk about uh, these movements throughout time. And I thought, why don't we just go through them now and get them out of the way? Sure. But that's our episode for today, Benedict. Uh, Did you learn any more than you did from that other podcast you cheated on this one with? (laughs) Yes. Okay. Well, that's all I needed to hear. You you covered them much more in detail. That's uh, all I needed to hear to make me sleep better at night. And more more dick jokes. (laughs) (laughs) I always specialize in that. (laughs) But uh, thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. And remember, if you just can't get enough of us... You can go over to patreon.com forward slash NYGBC and become a patron for as little as $1 an episode for patron-only episodes, shout-outs on the show, early releases of our episodes, and more. As always, we have to give a shout-out to our wonderful and amazing patrons, a baby, Veronica Forker. Paul, it's still a baby. It's still a baby. I gotta know. Do we have a baby as a fan? Polly Hauptman, Melissa C., J.D., George Saldier, Tinker's Dam, Janet Yutter, Stefan, Shannon Hellman. Utah Outcast, Brent Lee, Dave Barwick. I lost my rhythm. I fucked it up, and now I'm paying for nah, it. Yeah, now yeah. I'm paying for it. Uh, I don't know who I said last, so I will go Utah Outcast, Brent Lee, Dave Barwick, Chris Palmer, Bad Bible Stitches, Mockingbird Nation, Bacraw, Benjamin Carlisle, Dexter, Allison, Megan Ruth, Glowrung the Deceiver, Big Easy, blah, Big Easy Blasphemy, Stephen and Cindy Dimmick, AJ Brantley, Taro Tacannon, and Balls Waters. And thank you all, as always, for being our patrons. That's it for this week's show. Till next time, there are no heroes. Goodbye. Goodbye. podcast is a production of Kevin and Benedict Productions. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved. Music for this podcast is by Silverman Sound Studios. Find out more at silvermansound.com.